You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Local voices, local conversations. Welcome to Napa Valley College Now here on NapaBroadcasting.com. A conference is being held coming up on April 8th here in the Performing Arts Center at Napa Valley College designed to protect children from sex trafficking and to additionally look at the issue of violence against women. The event is being sponsored by the Napa Valley College Foster and Kinship Care Education Program, and one of the speakers at that conference will be our guest today, Jane Anderson. She's an attorney advisor for the Washington, D.C.-based organization A. Equitas. Its mission is to improve the quality of justice in sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, and human trafficking. Jane Anderson served as an assistant state's attorney with Florida's 11th Judicial Circuit in Miami's Dade County. As a prosecutor, she tried many of the state's first human trafficking cases, and she was a founding member of the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Human Trafficking Unit and Task Force. It is my pleasure to welcome Jane Anderson to the program. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. When we talk about human trafficking today, what specifically are we talking about? It's one of those phrases that's you know been used for so long. I'm not sure people have a clear understanding of what we're talking about today. Um, absolutely. That's a great way to start the conversation because it, it the, the name human trafficking sometimes can elicit images that don't really accurately reflect how we see human trafficking here in the United States and how it appears in our communities. So human trafficking is really about exploitation as opposed to some um, people that might think it's about transportation. You know, human trafficking doesn't require that people be moved across national boundaries or even county, state, or city boundaries. It's all about exploiting those that are most vulnerable in our communities. And what form does that take? What form does it take here in our community? And, for example, when you were back in in Miami-Dade County and dealing with these issues, what form did it take there? What were those cases about? Sure. There are sort of two large um, differentials between human trafficking. So on one end you have sex trafficking, and the other end you have labor trafficking. Communities like Miami-Dade County, where I worked, and also Napa Valley have both or have um, the risk of having both because you have for labor trafficking, more typically the victims of labor trafficking are going to be foreign nationals that are working in agricultural jobs, um, low-paying jobs and venues like hotels, restaurants, construction. And then sex trafficking really appears in communities, every community across the United States, but you see a spike in human trafficking in the sex industry where you have like an entertainment zone or you have um, a large amount of tourism, bachelor parties, things like that. So because Napa is uniquely situated with both an agricultural life and sort of this, um, this destination tourism and entertainment, even though it's very, you know, um, sort of this highbrow entertainment, mm-hmm. there's still an opportunity for sex trafficking to be occurring as well. And of course, so much of it is going on not only below the radar, but deep below the radar. Talk about that. And and, and certainly, I'm sure that if we started surveying people, you'd, you'd have lots of people that would say, no, this isn't happening here in Napa County, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, sex trafficking is sometimes typically sort of perceived as, oh, prostitution. Um, And in fact, it does occur in the sort of prostitution 
um, fields most of the time. But when a big change has happened is that no longer do you have, you know, um, women working in prostitution on the streets. You know, it used to be there'd be a, a little red light neighborhood in cities and things like that, or a certain street that was known for streetwalkers. With the advent of more technology-driven and online-driven um, uh, prostitution, it's a lot easier to hide how this is occurring. So no longer is it just sort of a nuisance and everybody knows where to find it on the street. Instead, it's, you know, um, in hotels, in limousines, all sort of hidden by the fact that it's online and not in our open view. And talk about the exploitation aspect of this, because sometimes the reaction to talking about this, well, it's a victimless crime and this is what people are mm-hmm. doing. And, and why is government so deeply involved? Well, like I said, it's about exploitation and there's going to be a lot, you know, there's, there's an ongoing conversation about how much of sex work is voluntary and even where it's voluntary, how much of it is coerced through the fact that um, most of the time women um, and marginalized people have no other choice and this is a choice of prostitution and what kind of voluntariness that really means. But for the majority, and in my experience, most people that are involved in commercial sexual activity, whether it be prostitution and stripping, pornography, these are people that have a long history of deep traumatic activity. Um, The number one um, sort of across-the-board trait that I would see in the victims that I worked with, and I'm talking over 200 victims that I personally would have spoken to over the years, almost I would be pretty confident saying that about 90% of them had experienced prior sexual abuse, neglect, before even entering into the commercial sexual exploitation industry. So you have this compound trauma, and those that are looking to exploit, who do they look for? They look for the most vulnerable people in the community, whether those are kids that are in our foster care system that have not had stable homes, that have a history of running away, whether it's people that have substance abuse or mental health issues, or people that are here undocumented and have the fear of, you know, someone turning them into the police. Um, All of those populations are extremely vulnerable for somebody that's looking to exploit someone. And that exploitation takes form in many ways. And oftentimes you'll see that the trafficker and the victim have a bond, either a familial bond or a romantic bond. And that's because traffickers know that the best way to actually control and exploit someone is not through constant violence, chaining them to a wall, but it's about putting chains on their mind and controlling them through fear, intimidation, and sort of less overt violence and other coercive means. So the trauma that victims of human trafficking have experienced has many times started very early in their lives, and it continues to compound itself with each exploitation along the way. And when we see these victims, oftentimes they don't appear to be, you know, a weak um, victim that's exploited. They sometimes appear to be very hardened 
because that's how they've survived through all of this trauma in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're street smart and, um, you know, very willful and are trying to just make it through this course of trauma. I know you talked about that this was about exploitation as opposed to transportation, but given that that a lot of this does cross state lines and in some cases international lines, particularly as we're even talking about agricultural workers, what is the prosecutorial landscape of this look like given those realities? Well, sure. Um, You'll often find that it does cross borders. And so what we at Equitas and trying to support prosecutors, we have to always say this is, you know, this takes a village. You need to have many, many partners, either regional task force, state task force, um, you know, relationships between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. So many years ago when I would say people really started looking at this as human trafficking and not just, you know, this part of society that we didn't want to look at, but as true victims that we needed to address. It really initially was like a federal issue. And we saw most of the early prosecutions being done on a federal level. And then as time progressed, the states and local municipalities really started taking a look. Hey, if this is happening in our backyards, if these are our children um, and it's happening down our streets, we want to be able to also prosecute that. So now all 50 states in the United States have a state statute as well. And so often these crimes can be prosecuted by both the federal government and the local state government. And so therefore, um, sometimes it's, you have to look at the case and the, and the federal government will say, hey, we've got a stronger case. We're going to get more bang from the buck here. Let's take, let's take it to the federal court system. And other times it really makes more sense for a state prosecutor, a local district attorney to handle the case for various reasons um, because the systems are different. But when they're working together, that's really when you know that nothing, well, well you're hopeful that things aren't falling through the cracks, that mm. somebody there is taking responsibility and going after those offenders. How large is the problem, at least in in California first, and as you see it across the U.S.? Is this something that is growing numbers? Is is it something where all this prosecution that you're talking about is beginning to have an impact? How large a problem are we talking about? Well, like I said, this is happening in every community across our country, Um, and it has been. I think that it can be seen by some to be a growing problem, but it may actually just be we're looking at it. We're finding it because we're looking for it. And it's always been there. Um, people like to hear the statistics and there are probably some out there online, but I always caution people because we really do start with the premise that this is something that is underreported, that we don't see that much of, that if what we do see is probably the tip of the iceberg. And so all of those you know, sort of data points have to be questioned um, about how realistic they really are. And I think the problem is probably larger than any of those numbers will show you. Um, and other numbers, you know, they're really just extrapolating from what we do know. So I caution people to, to think about that. But I will say that anywhere where there are vulnerable people, there is trafficking. And I don't know of a community that doesn't have a vulnerable population within it. 
And talk a little bit about the child aspect to this, because it's happening with children ages five and up. Talk a little about mm-hmm. that. Yes, when it comes to um, trafficking and children, really um, there are a couple of different models that we see. One is the extremely young children that you're mentioning, uh, and that is more likely to be both boys and girls. And oftentimes it appears in a way that maybe typically we thought of as child pornography. Um, So people that are exploiting their own biological children, stepchildren, um, foster children, and making movies or selling these children to perpetrators out there, buyers that are looking for that. And so that's one aspect that we see with the very, very young children. Um, As children become older and become more adolescent, then we see the sex trafficking really being predators from outside of the families, although not necessarily, that are identifying them within our communities and going after them as prey. So in that case, you're going to see the runaway youth that or that youth that are in unstable homes and are spending a lot of time on the street. Um, You know, a lot of statistics will say things like, you know, just based on my caution, but we'll say things like if kids are on the street, they're going to be approached by someone within, you know, 24, 48 hours of being on the street or that children will engage in what we call survival sex for food and shelter and basic needs on the street. And that survival sex will oftentimes turn into a more of a trafficking situation. And then as we get older, we just see that, um, that predators are online, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, and they're just sort of, you know, putting out their fishing rod and seeing if they get a hook. Hey, girl, you're really pretty. And if someone starts talking to them, it they use almost like um, they use a romantic, go Romeo type lore to get kids to leave their homes, oftentimes for you know, a promised life that's going to be much better, whether it involves fame or fortune or traveling the world or whatever that little um, lore is they'll use and that carrot will continue to dangle with our children. Um, and it's, it's remarkable how easy it is when we're talking about kids that have um, these pre-existing vulnerabilities. Right. For those kids that don't have those pre-existing vulnerabilities, how concerned, how afraid should parents be? Because sometimes that, that becomes an issue of, of over-concern sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important that uh, parents are monitoring their children's lives online. Uh, that's where we're seeing most of the recruitment come from. Um, because, you know, even somebody, you know, I have worked with victims that come from stable homes that are still in school that don't have any of those obvious markers. Um, but like I said, it's any vulnerability, which can be something as as simple as somebody that's looking for some self-esteem, looking for attention from boys, not getting it from school, and all of a sudden they're getting it from some guy online that is, you know, telling her that she could be a model or that... Um, he wants to whisk her away and that he is, you know, that he's got lots of money and he's lives this wonderful lifestyle. So when we're talking about teenage girls or boys or, 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 or anyone that's sort of at that age group, you're going to have some amount of vulnerability just based on, 
the fact that those are some awkward years and everybody's looking for something. So you do want to be um, aware of the online life for sure. You want to be looking for, you know, boyfriends that are much older, that your children are being secretive about, um, expensive gifts that perhaps your kids are coming home with that you didn't buy them. Um, oftentimes it'll be a cell phone um, because the perpetrator is looking to have direct communication um, that is like a secret, right? Because um, that sometimes it's, it's fun to have a secret when you're that age. So look out for some things like that. But this isn't something that, you know, um, we see kids getting snatched from the bus stops. That's more the movie version of it, right. uh, not the reality that we see most of the time. Beyond the, the, the parental aspect that we've been talking about, what can communities be doing to really guard against this and to really stay vigilant about it? Education and awareness. Um, you know, and it's hard because we're talking about sex trafficking, commercial sex work, but these conversations need to be have, had early on. We need to talk about um, self-esteem and talk about appropriate relationships and how to, how kids can look out for, hey, that person is is paying me undue attention. This isn't an appropriate relationship. What might this person be looking for? Not just my, you know, company. Um, and so I think that educational awareness for the, for the kids, and uh, we're talking at a really young age, this conversation needs to be had. It doesn't need to be as explicit as, you know, as, as, you know, talking about prostitution, but talking about, um, safe relationships, safe online activity, appropriate, Peer to peer relationships and things like that. And finally, tell us a little bit about Equitas, your company, and, and what it does. Sure. We're a nonprofit. We're funded through the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women. Um, we are all former prosecutors that now work as attorney advisors. All of us come from a background where we specialized in prosecuting crimes of domestic violence, sexual violence, human trafficking stalking, and we provide free resources, support, and training for not only prosecutors, but any allied professional that is working in this arena. So oftentimes we'll provide trainings to medical professionals, law enforcement. Oftentimes we'll like to do a multidisciplinary training so everybody in the room is hearing the same information and learning how they can best work together. Because these types of crimes that really affect um, someone's personhood and family and children, it requires everyone to be on the same page about supporting our victims, keeping our victims at the center of this process, while still making sure we're doing our job to hold the offenders accountable. So Equitas is a free resource that, um, and we make ourselves available best as we can to anyone that's working in this type of field. Jane Anderson, we'll look forward to seeing you at the conference being held here at Napa Valley College on April 8th. And I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to Napa Valley College Now on NapaBroadcasting.com, the online radio home of Napa Valley College.